Thank you, David. Good morning. Good morning. I'm compelled uh, to alter my approach to preaching this morning. And so I am going to begin with a very serious question to start off with, and then a very sad story before I begin the actual sermon. Why do you come to church? Why do I come to church? It's a very serious question and a, requires a very serious response. And your answer will determine the state of your heart. And God is interested in your heart more than anything else in your life. Let me briefly relate to you a story by Alphonse Daudet that I used to teach in French class to my senior students. It was entitled La Dernière Classe, The Last Class. This story had a profound effect on not only my students, but also upon me as well. And it affected the way I approached all my tasks and duties ever since. After the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871, Germany took from France as part of her spoils the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, a rich and historical region in France on the west bank of the upper Rhine River next to Germany. And as a result, German was suddenly made the official language of the schools, the courts, and all business transactions in those two provinces. French would no longer be taught. The author, Alphonse Daudet, who was born in 1840, wrote a most poignant short story about this particular event, which he entitled The Last Class. In it, we read about a young boy named Franz, who was always late for school and was deathly afraid of being scolded and disciplined by the schoolmaster. And today's lesson was to be on verbs and participles something he did not have a clue about. And so little Franz decided to once again skip class and take his lesson in the beautiful fields outside. But in the distance, little Franz heard the Prussians, which was the old name for Germans, shooting their weapons nearby. He therefore decided to quickly head for class instead. Along the way, he noticed a large crowd had gathered outside the town hall where all the latest news was posted. As he ran quickly past the milling crowd, one of the villagers yelled out to him, Don't be in such a hurry, little guy. You'll get to your school soon enough. When Franz finally arrived, he saw his teacher, Mr. Hamel, with his terrible wooden yardstick under his arm, pacing in front of the class, while all the students sat quietly in their desks, waiting, waiting for little Franz. Petrified, little Franz entered the room 
expecting another nasty punishment for his tardiness and ignorance of the lesson. But instead, he was amazed at what greeted him when he entered. Mr. Hamill calmly looked at him and said, Quickly, Franz, take your seat. We were going to start without you. When Franz took his seat, he was surprised to see the classroom packed from wall to wall, not with just students, but with many of the old villagers. He noticed in particular old man Hauser, the former mayor, seated with his tricorn hat still on his head and an old rickety ABC book in French in his shaky hands. There he also saw the old mailman, as well as many of the older citizens sitting quietly waiting for the teacher to begin the lesson. Mr. Hamill went slowly to his desk and sat down, and in a quiet but trembling voice and tears in his eyes said, My children, this is the last time that I will be teaching you. The order has come from Berlin that only German is to be taught and used in Alsace and Lorraine. Your new teacher will arrive tomorrow. Today will be your last lesson in French. I beg you, please pay attention. The story ends very tearfully, describing the profound regret of all the participants for taking for granted their education in French and for not doing their best to profit from it. The church is in much the similar situation today, isn't it, dearly friends? Many find other activities to draw them away from attending church and learning the word of God, thinking that there will always be next Sunday or that there will always be another sermon. However, laws are being legislated in this country today that will soon remove our accessibility to the preaching of the word of God. What will our reaction be then? So I ask you once again, before I begin the sermon, why do you come to church? Why do I come to church? And I trust that we can all give a def definitive answer before the end of this service, at least to ourselves. And be able to live with it. Let's pray before we go on. Father, we do thank thee for this awesome privilege that we have each Lord's Day to gather together to remember the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. And we pray that as we open thy word again this morning and read about the woman at the well, oh, that precious story of interaction between the Savior and this Samaritan woman, we pray, Lord, that we might glean from it ourselves in that story and what it is that thou would have us to do and how we might best profit from this story. Help us, Lord, to have attentive ears, 
and receptive hearts this morning as we open this story about the Samaritan woman who met the Savior at the well of Jacob. For we ask it in our Savior's name and all for his glory. Amen. The woman at the well is a marvelous account of God's love, mercy, and grace at work in a sinner's heart. For it extends even to the Samaritan who in scripture was seen as an outcast, a despised and wretched tribe, the avowed adversary of the Jew. The Samaritans were mongrel Jews, both in blood and religion. They were those who descended from the colonies of the Assyrian captivity. They were the poor of the land that were left behind and who later afterwards intermarried. They were the Israelite sect in the New Testament whose central sanctuary was on Mount Gerizim, a mountain in central Samaria near Shechem. The Jews, on the other hand, saw Jerusalem as the place to worship and had their temple built there. The prejudice and the animosity between the Jew and the Samaritan was so great that neither had dealings with each other unless it was utterly unavoidable. And the scripture tells us in verse 4 and 5 that our Lord passed through Samaria. He went there to a city called Sychar, which was near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now here is a most interesting fact in light of the present circumstances. Jesus, who was born a Jew, went through Samaria to get to Galilee. A stern, legalistic Jew would never have taken that route. But Jesus did. For long before the creation of the world, it had been settled in the councils of eternity that he was to meet a poor, sinful Samaritan woman that day. And he could not forego that appointment. And so the scripture says, and he must needs go through Samaria until he came near the city of Sychar and thereby Jacob's well he stopped. Being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the wall, on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It was high noon, our time, the hottest part of the day, and he was thirsty. And then came the woman of Samaria to draw water. Please notice that Jesus was already waiting when she got there. It's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus was already there when we came to the well. He was already waiting when we first arrived, just as he is here waiting for this poor Samaritan woman. Now, we may wonder a little bit about this Samaritan woman. Was she old or was she young? Was she a mother of any children? Was she a strong woman, hardened and toughened by the many years of hard labor? Or was she a frail woman ravaged by many illnesses and excessive labors? Was she loved? Now that is the most important question. Was this woman loved by anyone in her life? Or was she lonely and rejected? There was at least one, we may safely say, 
who loved her dearly and had come to see her, just her, and was waiting for her when she arrived at the well. And that was her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our first point in our message for this morning, which I've entitled, The Samaritan's Savior. I suppose this woman's first reaction when she saw Jesus sitting at the well was perhaps not a very positive one. She was a Samaritan, and he was a Jew. Not only that, but the legalistic character of the day would rarely allow such an encounter between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man to be very pleasant. What was he doing there? Where did he come from? Is he going to give me a rough time? This is my territory. Why is he here? Will he try to insult me and prevent me from drawing water? But oh, how surprised she must have been when he looked up at her and very kindly said to her, Give me to drink. An ordinary Jew would have never taken a cup of water from her hands. He would have dashed the cup to the ground even if she had offered it. But this Jew was different. This man was quite different. He had taken her by surprise, both by his presence and by his demeanor. Verse 9. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Here again we marvel. The very Son of God himself is standing before her, the very creator of the universe, and she knows him not. You have nothing with which to draw this water, she tells him in verse 11. So how are you to get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? Now, I do not wish to take anything away from Jacob. But lo, here before her very eyes stood one far greater than she could have ever imagined. He was far greater than Jacob or Isaac or even Abraham and Moses. He was the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the gift of God to the whole world. He was the one who came to give eternal life, those living waters, to all who would believe on him. John the Baptist presented him to the Jews as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And earlier on also, in that same book, he came unto his own, and his own received them not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. John 1, 11 to 12. Yes, this one standing at the well 
was sent by God the Father to redeem the lost. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The scriptures clearly tell us that the reason he came was to save, to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. But the motive for his coming was love, love for the lost, love for the sinner like the Samaritan woman at the well, love for sinners like you and for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 This was the Savior of the entire world. Though he was the Savior of Israel, he was no less the Savior of Samaria. He was the perfect, sinless one whom the world had been waiting for since the promise was first made in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Those who knew him well spoke of his purity in no unmistakable terms. He was sinless. The Apostle Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God would put our sins upon his own Son and then punish him in our place, while at the same time giving his Son's righteousness to us in exchange, if only, if only we would believe on him and trust him as our Savior. Then the Apostle Peter also writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that this Jesus did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Is there any other human being that could ever make this claim about himself, that he never committed a single sin, whether in deed or in word or even in thought throughout his entire life. None could, none but Jesus. And then the Apostle John, the disciple of love, who perhaps knew Jesus best, said in 1 John 3, 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. In other words, there was no sin nature in Jesus. This Holy One of God never sinned, never could have sinned, because there was no sin nature in him. He was pure, and he was sinless. Even his enemies had to admit to his innocence. But because of their hatred for him, they nonetheless crucified him. What greater tribute could be given to an honest man than to have his own enemies say of him, 
I find no fault in him. Luke 23, 4. But Jesus did not tell her that a greater one than Jacob was indeed standing before her. For had he done so, she may have shrunk away from him, thinking that he was presumptuous. But rather than alarming her, he sought to reach her heart and her conscience and answered in verse 13, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, he said, pointing to the well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman's heart begins to reach out to Christ. She begins to trust him, that he means what he says, so she timidly asks him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Oh, how sweet those words must have been to the Savior's ear. An earnest soul's request that he give her this water of everlasting life. But that was not all. There was plenty for all, even for her husband. Go, call thy husband and come hither, verse 16. Go and get your husband too. There is enough for everyone. Well, see the gentleness of the Savior's approach to a needy sinner's heart. See how he gently probes the sinful past to bring to the forefront the urgency of her repentance. Which now brings us to our second point in our message, which I've entitled, The Samaritan's Sin. The woman answers Jesus that she has no husband. So Jesus begins to probe her conscience by revealing to her the truth of her guilty past and the sinfulness of her present state. You are right when you say that this one whom you now have, whom you are presently living with, is not your husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. She stands there momentarily dumbfounded. Who is this man? I've never met him before, and he knows all my sordid past as well as my present mess. How did he know when I did not tell him? The sin of adultery was a very serious thing with the Jews. I cannot say with certainty how the matter was dealt with by the Samaritans, but her sin found her out. Now, there are many today who foolishly believe that the evil which they do in private will remain in private, that no one will find out. But the fact that the matter is more serious, the Bible warns us in Numbers 32, 23, that you can be sure your sin will find you out. There is no such thing as a secret sin. It may be secret to your family or to your neighbor or to your colleagues or friends, but it is no secret to God. 
The Bible says in 1 Kings 8.39, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. Sin cannot be hidden from God. God always knows. And her sins had found her out. Adultery. Violation of the sixth commandment. It was a serious violation. One whose violation brought the punishment of death by stoning. In Leviticus 20.10, the law clearly prescribed the sentence of death for adultery. And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And this same Jesus reaffirmed the sin of adultery in his Sermon on the Mount, Mount Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Even Jesus did not break the bond of marriage for any reason whatsoever. There is no cause after marriage for divorce, only before marriage, and that is a fornication. So many today are rewriting that sixth, sixth commandment. Thou shalt commit adultery only in the following cases. But dearly beloved, we see here a sentence of death for sin, which only the Savior can remove. God, who is holy and omnipotent, sets the rules and standards for his people. The disobedience of those standards is called sin, and sin always brings death. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Samaritan woman found grace that day at the well. She was under the sentence of death because she was a sinner. Though only one sin was brought to her conviction, we know there were countless others because we have all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God daily. But the love of God was reaching out to her, offering to her the gift of God, which was eternal life through this one who would give her water that would spring up into everlasting life. And so she begins to acknowledge his uniqueness. She tells him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, verse 19. And then she hurries into her discussion of, ver of worship in verse 20. She perceives the burden of her sins growing and the need to meet with God, to offer up a sin offering for her sins. But where should she go? To Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, or to Jerusalem, where the Jews claim as the place of worship. And see how beautifully the Spirit of God convicts and then convinces the sinner 
of his or her need of cleansing. Where shall I go to meet God? Where shall I go to worship? Where shall she go to get right with God so that she may worship him and receive forgiveness of sins? Then the Savior explains to her within the next few verses, 21 to 24, some precious truths about genuine worship. First, he says, the time is coming when God will put away all earthly buildings or sanctuaries in which to worship. You will be able to meet him anywhere and everywhere if you are ready to take your rightful place before him and confess your sins and own your guilt. Then you can lift your heart up to him as your father. For the very instant that you confess your sins, he forgives. And so in that way, you can be a worshiper, for the father is seeking such to worship him. He has not left you to seek him first, but he is seeking you. And you can find him anywhere if your heart is honest before him. He is a spirit. He has no bodily form. He cannot be confined to a building. He is present everywhere. But he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And as the Lord revealed these exciting and wonderful truths about worship, things that no one else on earth has ever told her, she began to wonder, could he be the Messiah? For this man speaks as no man has ever spoken. And so she indirectly asks him if he could be that Messiah by saying, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And please forgive me for probing here, but I can just see her looking at those tender eyes of Jesus, timidly trying to catch them with hers, hopeful that this may be the long-awaited one. And her heart was now racing with anticipation. And perhaps there may have been a moment's silence before he spoke these most wonderful words. I that speak unto thee am he. I am the Messiah. Oh, what satisfaction was hers to hear that wonderful news, which brings us now to our third point in our message, which I've entitled The Samaritan's Satisfaction. How satisfying it is to quench one's thirst with cool, fresh water, especially during the hottest part of the day, new. But here, the satisfaction was far greater. The water that the Savior gave to the Samaritan woman was living water of eternal life, inexhaustible, ever running, ever available for the quenching of her thirst. No other waters could ever quench her thirst as these waters, this water that Jesus gave. King David knew the satisfaction that only God could give. 
He wrote in Psalm 65, verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causeth to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. And then we read in Psalm 107, verses 8 to 9, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. When this Samaritan woman met the Savior, her burdens were lifted. So satisfied and excited was she that she, in verse 28, left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came on to him. There is a saying in business, a satisfied customer is our best advertisement. A satisfied customer always brings others to the place where he or she found satisfaction. And as soon as this Samaritan woman was satisfied, she began serving by leading others to the source of her satisfaction, which now brings us to our fourth point in the message which I've entitled The Samaritan's Service. She became satisfied with Christ. What a blessed situation to be in, to be satisfied with Christ. And immediately she begins to witness. She went back to her city, Sychar, and testified what she had seen in verses 28 to 39, 30, 42, etc. But please notice that the scriptures tell us in verse 39 that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that I ever did. And perhaps there were a lot that, or there was a lot that Jesus told her that we do not have recorded here for us. For she said, all that I ever did. She was truly impressed and astonished with his revelations. It is quite conceivable that this conversation had lasted for a long time, of which only a portion is recorded here for us. And during that undisturbed conversation, the Samaritan woman had become converted and encouraged by the Savior's teaching on worship, so much so that she could scarcely refrain herself from telling others about him. And so she left her water pot behind as she went her way into the city. She immediately began to witness, though she may not have realized it at the time, because the dispensation of grace had not officially begun, she was using her royal priesthood in her witnessing to others. That is a wonderful service to serve as royal priests, witnessing and ministering one to another. 
the wonderful things of Christ. But then she too could worship God. And when she did that, she could use her holy priesthood, the ministry of the believer to the Lord, when we offer up our sacrifices of praise and substance to our God and Savior. When the day of Pentecost would later come, believers would learn these precious truths more clearly through the teachings of the apostles. It was Peter who later reveals these two aspects of every believer's service as priests. In 1 Peter 2, 5, he writes, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Peter 2, 8, he writes, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a tremendous truth that all believers are priests of God. This is not something that you go to seminary to to become. You become a priest of God the instant you receive him as your Savior and Lord. All have the same spiritual privileges and responsibilities to worship God in exercise of our holy priesthood, which we do each Lord's Day at the Lord's table, and to witness and minister to others in the exercise of our royal priesthood, something which I'm afraid that a lot of us are too embarrassed to do. And see how her faithful testimony brought fruit. Some believed on her testimony, but others who did not believe her words believed the Savior when she brought them to him. Verse 42, And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There will often be times when others will not believe our testimony. We should not be discouraged. We should still seek to tell others about the Savior and bring them to him so that they may hear his own words and believe on him. This then concludes our message for this morning on the woman at the well. But before I step down from this platform, as always, I must ask you again a very solemn question. Are you satisfied with Christ our Savior this morning? If you are, are you telling others about him too? But if perchance you have often come to the well for water and have never asked him to give you that living water, why not do so now while there is yet some time? He will not refuse you. Our days are numbered and tomorrow may be too late. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank thee so much for this beautiful account of Jesus at the well of Jacob with the Samaritan woman, one who was despised in the eyes of the Jews, one who was an outcast, wretched, left out of the counsel of God, commonwealth of God. And yet, because of thy love, thou savest even such. And so, Father, we're so thankful that we have come to the Savior because there was someone who cared so much about our souls that they had prayed for us, that they had testified to us. And finally, those precious witnesses who actually led us to the Savior. We thank thee for each and every one of them and pray that we too might have such a love and a burden for the lost so that we too might be like the woman at the well, satisfied with our Savior and eager to tell others about him. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together around his table next Lord's Day. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.